We're back in Mark, and I want to read Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We're going to be hanging out in this verse for the next couple weeks. I should use my... my... Okay. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Father, I pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts to your word tonight. Uh, That the spirit truly would do the the speaking tonight to the church. Uh, Lord, that we'd have uh, ears to hear what you're saying to us uh, in in the gospel of Mark. In Jesus' name, amen. This is an important uh, verse. I believe it's the the Lord's prayer of the gospel. You know how the Lord's prayer is sort of the pattern for prayer, and you can pretty much break down every every phrase in the Lord's prayer, and and it's a whole world of meaning, right? I mean, you just start with our... (laughs) Jesus taught us to pray using plural pronouns. We're, we're a part of a body. When, when we pray, it's us, we, our, all right? I mean, you can just go through the whole Lord's Prayer that way, our Father. I mean, that was one of the big things that Jesus came to do, to show us that we could pray to God as Father. Um, this verse is like that with the Gospel. Um, you can go through very slowly... And really get a pretty full uh, picture of what the gospel is through this, uh, just these two verses. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna just talk about the first half of this, uh, of, of really of, of verse fifteen tonight, where it says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now this happened. It says right as John, after John was arrested, Jesus began to preach in this way. And it says he was proclaiming the gospel of God. In saying, so this is the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then the second part of it, which we'll talk about next week, is really just a response to the gospel. The gospel is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what we're compelled to do now that the gospel has been revealed is repent and believe the gospel. All right. So that's really what we're going to be talking about uh, for for these next couple weeks. These words, when Jesus spoke them, when he began to proclaim them in Galilee, would have been would have been interpreted in a few different ways, several different ways. Uh, and, and they would have struck everyone a little bit differently. All right? And that's one of the things that you see a lot in, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus just throwing things out there. And depending on who it is that's listening, they hear it in a different way. Jesus explains this in chapter 4 when he gives the parable of the sower. He says, I'm throwing stuff out there. I'm throwing the word out. And let me tell you, it's doing a bunch of different things. There's lots of different uh, responses to the word. 
So these words, this gospel, would have hit everyone a little bit differently. Um, Particularly, I want to talk about the nation of Israel at this time, the Jewish people at this time, how they would have heard the time is fulfilled, particularly that first half. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The nation of Israel at this time uh, wasn't really a, a, a political nation, right? They didn't really own any land. They were sort of um, under Roman, uh, these uh, kind of interim rulers. Uh, Rome wasn't really sure what to do with the Jews. And so there was just kind of this weird, uncertain time. And there was a bit of disagreement amongst Jews over how to be the people of God in this current political climate. What, what are we to do? How are we to be faithful Jews? How are we to be faithful Israelites in this time? So what had happened was they, they had gotten to the place of exile, and then they had come back into the land, and then there were just a couple hundred years where they were just sort of there, and there were power struggles, and they were never really restored back to some of the things that you see in the prophets about when they come back from exile. I mean, there's just some glorious prophecies we read through in Isaiah. When they come back, they're going into exile, but when they come back, oh man, what a day that is going to be. The Lord is going to have his day and the people of God are going to be vindicated. And so people carried it inside of them that, that hope and that longing but everybody had a little bit of a different idea of how, to, how exactly do we live now in that hope. So some were uh, zealots, some were revolutionaries, you know, kind of going, the, the, going by force or violence. You know, they would, um, sometimes there would be coups that were staged. And even some people were, were considered possibly messiahs during this time. They would arise and there would be revolts and rebellions and people would rally around a particular charismatic leader. You can read about some of this stuff in some of the apocryphal books of the Old Testament, Maccabean Revolt and, and these things. So there were zealots. They were political activists. Uh, there were also the Pharisees. We learn a lot about the Pharisees from the Gospels. We see them a lot in the Gospels, and they get a pretty bad rap. You know, Jesus seems to save his choicest insults <laughs> for the Pharisees. Very flowery, flowery language directed at the Pharisees. But basically, they were trying to, uh, to achieve purity according to Torah. They were trying to uh, worship God in a way that was faithful to what they saw in the Word. And so, you know, I don't think we should look at the Pharisees and go, what, what idiots. I, I think that their intentions were actually fairly noble. They were very misguided in a lot of ways. They missed the heart of God. But what, did they, what were they aiming at? They were aiming at being the people of God in a faithful way. That's what, they, that's what they desired to do. So they encouraged purity according to Torah and worship directed towards particularly the temple in Jerusalem. They wanted to be the people who had the word and who worshipped at the temple in the way that the word prescribed. Uh, there were some more just Jewish aristocrats who were maybe um, due to their wealth, they had some more sway in the political climate. These would be, uh, a lot of these people were called the Sadducees. And they were more pragmatists, you know, like, all right, well, 
let's just, uh, let's just try to ingratiate ourselves with uh, the powers that be. And then there were also uh, people who were uh, more reclusive. They would go out to the wilderness and they would study the scriptures and they would remove themselves, kind of like a monastic community. They would remove themselves from society as much as possible and go and pray for the restoration of Israel. And they expected that, um, well, so all of those different groups expected a different thing about when God would come and finally fulfill those promises that he gave them in the prophets. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand, all four of those groups would have heard something a little bit differently. Right? The zealots would have heard, strap on your swords, let's go. The Pharisees would have heard, um, let's head to the temple. Here comes, uh, here comes the, the, the anointed one. Here, here comes the high priest. Um, the aristocrats might have heard something like, hey, maybe we'll finally get that nice uh, new altar that, that the Roman prefect has promised us. <laughs> and the monastics may have heard something like, all right, we're waiting for the fire of God to come down from heaven and, and, uh, and, and sweep through the land and, and for um, this, this new age of, of the reign of God on earth to begin. So they disagreed in many, di- in many different ways, what it, what it would look like. But what they all would have agreed upon was that there was still a time to come, that, that the way things are, are not what God promised in the prophets. We have not reached that yet. We have not seen the fulfillment of those promises yet. All four of those groups were waiting for an age to come where God would act, that God himself would return to his people, where God would finally deal with sin once for all. This was one of the prophetic hopes where he would rescue them from pagan rule and destroy their enemies. And where God himself would take the throne and where God would establish the Davidic king and place him on the throne in the midst of Israel. And that king would be the king of all nations. And then all nations would come just like in the time of Solomon and learn the ways of the Lord from Israel. That's what they all longed for. They all had a similar hope in that way. So again, when Jesus came saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom is at hand, this was not a foreign proclamation. This was something that they were waiting to hear. There was a hope, a longing within Jewishness itself that, everybody, that, that every Jew would have known in, in some way, in some form. So this hope was rooted mainly in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. We've, we've, um, uh, we've been through some of those recently. And these writings, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Daniel, they look back at Israel's history, particularly Abraham's election by God and his, the, the, the inheritance that was promised to his, his offspring, the land, I will give to you this land. They look back at the Exodus, the deliverance from Egypt, and they look back at David's throne and God's promise to David to set one of his offspring on the throne forever. They look back at those moments in Israel's history as an indication of what God's going to do in the ages to come. And the prophetic writing says, this is what God has done and this is what he is going to do once again. 
Um, the prophets came to address a problem with Israel, that they had been faithless. They had turned to idols. They had terminally failed, and they were to receive exile. And the exile from the land was a righteous act on God's part. It wasn't, um, it wasn't just anger. It wasn't just human wrath. It was actually God fulfilling his end of the covenant, which is, if you are faithful, you will be blessed. If you are faithless, you will be cursed. Okay? God was just being consistent with the way he said he was going to act. And so the prophets say, you have failed, and so God is needing to act to exile you. But this is what, this is what the, the prophets always proclaim. And this goes all the way back even to some of the writings of, in the Pentateuch, that you're going to be faithless, you're going to fall away, you're going to find yourself in exile. And when you do, and when you turn to the Lord with all of your heart, and this gets into the second half of the gospel, repent and believe. When you turn, then God will bring you back and he will restore you and he will give you a new heart and he will forgive your sins and he will bring you back to the land and he will bring you out of slavery and there's going to be a new exodus. All right, so the prophet said, you're going into exile, but in doing so, God is setting up another situation in which he can move mightily on behalf of his people and bring them back into the land. So yes, there's judgment coming, but as we saw all through the book of Isaiah, it's always sprinkled with hope. It's judgment because you deserve it and hope because that's who God is. And in each of those messages of hope, there's, there's a shadowy, there's a little glimpse, a glimmer here and there of this figure that Jews would have called the Messiah. All right. Yes, he was going to be a Davidic king, but he was also going to be a priestly figure. And he was also going to have something to do with, um, with cleansing us from sins, but also establishing the throne. And there was going to be this king slash priest, this Messiah, this anointed one that was coming to Israel. And so they were hoping and trying to figure out who is this person and, and what is he going to look like? So all those groups of the different kinds of Jews would have been looking for a figure known as the Messiah who was going to be the focal point of God's plan to save Israel and, and through Israel to save the world like he promised to Abraham. And this would not usher in a new era, a new heavens and a new earth or the age to come or the day of the Lord as uh, some of the prophets describe it. Um, well, one of the most well-known of these passages in the Old Testament that Jews would have been familiar with and would have, would have understood is in Daniel 7. And I want to read that because it's really important. Daniel 7 is really important to our understanding of Mark. So go to Daniel 7 and start in verse 9. <clears throat> As I looked... Um, this is, this is after a, a vision of four, uh, four beasts, and these represent four empires, basically, um, that are going to come and oppress the, the people of God. And then after all this, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. 
Thousand, and a thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. Which is, by the way, this is what Daniel's taught. This is what John saw in Revelation 5 that we just read during communion. John saw into heaven as well, just like Daniel. And they saw very similar things. Hey, there's God. There's the throne. There's uh, the fire. There's all the hosts of God worshiping him. There's the books for judgment, right? We're the, it's only the lamb who is worthy to open the books and be the judge. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. That's one of the, the horns of the beast that he referred to earlier. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So this is a figure, and he's like, this is, there's a man who's appearing before the Ancient of Days, which is Yahweh himself. And this man appears before him, and, and he's presented before him, verse 14, and to him was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's in Daniel. That's in the Old Testament. That was read and studied and known by Jews in Jesus' day before he, before he came on the scene. And so he says, there's going to be these beasts and these empires and these pagan rulers, but when the time is right, there's going to be this one like a son of man who comes and he's going to be presented. And so Jews were looking for this man. They were looking for this son of man who would come and who would appear before God and God would give him the kingdom and he would reign forever and ever. Daniel's prophecies are, are fascinating and they're dense and they're difficult to interpret. They're very confusing. There's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of debate about what they mean. But this one's pretty clear. Um, and the other thing that you see in Daniel, particularly I think that, that informs our, our reading of Mark, is that he's trying to discern the times. Remember, it's Daniel who is reading Jeremiah and realizes that Hey, Jeremiah said that exile was going to be 70 years. Let me, oh, hey, time's up, guys. It's been 70 years. Let's begin to pray. Let's see what God is doing. Okay, so Daniel has this understanding of the times being fulfilled. And now we need to, to, to pray in the move of God, and he's going to reestablish his kingdom. All right? So readers of Daniel then and now, are left with many questions of timing. When's all this going to happen? And Jesus then says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. All right, so we have, it's hard to get in our hearts and in our minds the kind of hope and longing that the Jewish people had. But I want you to try and, given everything that we just said, try and hear Jesus' proclamation the time is now. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is here. 
whoa, this is it. This means like we're getting into the age to come. This means that we're about to turn over a new leaf. This means that the throne is about to be ascended by God himself. What happens now? (laughs) All right. So, in Daniel, we see that he gets a revelation of when the time is right, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be presented before God and he's going to take the throne. And Jesus comes and he says, hey, now's the time. In fact, all through Mark, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And that would not have been lost on Jews in those days. The son of man. They would have been, hey, who, in Matthew, when Jesus asks his disciples, in Mark it says, who do people say that I am? In Matthew, which is a, a more Jewish-oriented gospel, he says, who do people say that the son of man is? So there were these discussions, there were these, these questions about this part in Daniel. Hey, who's the son of man? What do you think that is? What do you think he's going to look like? And Jesus, so it's interesting when he asks his, the, the way Matthew tells the story, he says, who do people say that the son of man is? But Jesus refers to himself as the son of man many times through Mark. Um, in the first half of the story, he's demonstrating that, so in, in chapters one through eight, right? We talked about the outline last week. In one through eight, it's really about who Jesus is and what he's here to do. Um, more, who, who is he, right? Um, and in chapter two, when he heals the guy, uh, the paralytic, he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And there's some, there's some confusion there. And he says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is another role of the Messiah. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins so that you can know exactly who you're dealing with here. I say to you, take up your bed and walk. A few verses later, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 27, he says to them, they're discussing the Sabbath. And he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So we have two things just in chapter 2. He's referring to himself as the Son of Man. Number one, I can, he can forgive sins. He can deal with sins. Number two, he can rightly interpret the law. He can rightly apply the law. All right? So the picture is filling out. Who is Jesus? And I love looking at the questions that, that, people, that people raise in the first eight chapters of Mark. In, uh, I'll, just, I'll just read a few of these. Uh, chapter 1, verse 26. Or verse 27. They were all amazed, and they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? <laughs> what is this? A new teaching with authority. Chapter 2, 16. The scribes and the Pharisees say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the crowds say, what is this? The scribes and the Pharisees say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And then they ask uh, a couple of verses later, the Pharisees ask, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Chapter 4, verse 41. His disciples say, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who are we dealing with here? Chapter 6, verse 2. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Who is this guy? In chapter 7, verse 5, the Pharisees and scribes again, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And they eat with defiled hands. And then by chapter 8, Jesus himself gets in on the questions. He goes, there's a lot of questions, guys. Verse 27, he says to his disciples, chapter 8, verse 27, who do people say that I am? They're all wondering. Everybody's trying to figure out who he is. Who do people say that I am? And they tell him a couple things. So, well, I think the best guesses out there are John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And this is where the story shifts. Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him, which is another weird thing that happens all through Mark. Why does Jesus constantly telling people, shut up, <laughs> shut up about me? <laughs> Silence. Don't tell anyone. Wait a minute. I thought the whole point of this part of this gospel was trying to make it clear who you are. So why don't you want us to tell anyone who you are? Well, in the first half of the book, there's a few conclusions that are made by the people around Jesus. In 737, the crowd say, you know what? He has done all things well. This guy is just awesome. He just does amazing things. It says they were astonished beyond measure. We're just smitten with this guy because of what he's doing. The Pharisees, chapter 8, verse 11, they were seeking a sign. Like, okay, all right, we see all this. We see what's going on. We see all the things, all right? We see the same things that everybody else does, but we're going to need a little extra proof from you. Are you really who you think, who, who we think you might be? We're going to need an extra sign. And he goes, forget it. You're not going to get a sign. <laughs> we know the disciples' conclusion. You are the Christ. And that's it. That's the truth, right? They get it. But then Jesus has to go the next step and not just, not just explain that, yes, I am the Son of Man, I am the Christ, I am this one that is coming. But then the next part of the book has to do with 
So what does that mean? So what does that look like? And this is the real question that's going to begin to cause everyone to react against him. Right? He brings everyone in. He shows everybody what he's doing. They begin to get all asking all the questions. And then he brings it down to, all right, my disciples say I'm the Christ. And now, verse 31 of chapter 8, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, this figure that you're waiting for, this person that you're longing for, this person that you think that you know is going to, that you're hoping for, and they're going to do all these things that you think that they're going to do. Fill in the blank of whatever your expectation is. He says, now I'm going to have to teach you what the Son of Man is really all about. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Up till now, he's been speaking in parables and he's even been saying, listen, I'm going to say everything in parables so that the people with ears to hear will hear. But now he says, let me just tell you straight up, no parable, no figurative language. (laughs) Here's what the Son of Man is going to do. Suffer, die, and rise. And this doesn't fit Peter's understanding of the Son of Man. He read it. He read Daniel differently. <laughs> Jesus, I, Jesus just has immense patience with his disciples, right? Well, from my understanding, Jesus, that scripture is really talking about a, a military leader. And he says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so the second half of the gospel, particularly in these, in these three or four chapters around chapter 8, he's correcting what everyone thought they knew about the Son of Man and the fulfillment of the times and the coming of the kingdom of God. Yes, the time is fulfilled. Yes, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the first half of the book. Now let me show you what that actually means. I'm going to read through another uh, blitz of scripture references. You don't have to go there. Um, I think just reading them will, will give you a sense of what we're talking about. 831. So he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. 838. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Which is, by the way, him ascending to the Father. Right? That's what Daniel's talking about. There's one like a Son of Man, and he appears on the clouds and is presented to the Ancient of Days. All right? And so this is not talking about Jesus coming again. It's talking about him coming to the Father after having suffered, died, and, and risen and ascended to the Father. Comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy... All those angels are up there around there singing to the Ancient of Days. Chapter 9, verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? How is that possible? How does that work out? A little rhetorical question on Jesus' part. How how is the Son of Man supposed to suffer? I thought he was going to have all authority and power. 
931. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. (laughs) They've learned their lesson by now. 1033. They were going up to Jerusalem. He said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. 1045. I start in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. It just said in, in, in the Daniel passage on the Son of Man, it says explicitly that everyone will serve the Son of Man. They will worship him. Every pe- all peoples, tribes, he will be given all glory. And he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Chapter 13, 26. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then, again, that's in the ascension. All right? That's in the ascension to the Father. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. He will send out, he pours out his Holy Spirit after having ascended. 1421. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 41. And he came the third time and said to him, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The time is fulfilled. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Fourteen sixty-two. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He told that to, well, he's before the council. He said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments. What Jesus said there, that he was that son of man, was the most offensive thing he could have said at that moment to that audience. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. 
So Jesus is really concerned with people understanding who he really is, that he is the Son of Man. And he's also equally concerned with people understanding what that actually means and what it looks like. It doesn't mean what most people think it means. But how do you, how do you, how do you uh, reconcile that with the fact that he keeps telling people not to say who he is? There's several scriptures, I won't go through them all, but there's several scriptures where he tells someone that he just healed, don't tell anyone. He tells an evil spirit who's saying, I know, I know who you are. I know who you really are. And he says, be quiet, silence. Part of this, and there's a lot of theories about this, but I, I think it comes down to, because the last time he says that to someone is when he tells his disciples, don't tell anybody about this until I have risen from the dead. In other words, he's saying, I think that it, he's saying it does no good for people to spout off information about who I am if they don't have the whole story, if they don't have the whole picture, right? The demons know one thing. Yeah, he's the son of God, but they don't, right? Big whoop. The demons believe that and, and, and tremble, but they don't have the whole picture, the people who have been healed know his power, but they really don't know everything else about him. Jesus was not interested in publicity for publicity's sake. He was interested in fully revealing once and for all the plan that was hidden for ages. And that's why he said, no, don't. No sneak peeks, because it's going to be taken out of context. People are going to continue in their hardness of heart to not understand it's only going to be after the Son of Man dies. And that's why when he said to his disciples, don't tell anyone until after I've risen from the dead. Implicit in that is don't tell anyone until they've seen me suffer. They've seen me hang on the cross until I was dead. They've seen me not come down from the cross. They've seen me forgive people from on the cross. <laughs> they've seen the temple torn into everything that happened around his death. They've seen me go into the grave They've seen the stone rolled away. They've seen me with my nail-scarred hands and my pierced side and my resurrection body. Then people will finally get who I really am. They'll finally understand who the Son of Man is. So there are key moments in the gospel where the revelation really comes through. There's people in the dark. There's people who, with partial understanding. There's people who don't quite see. It's like that blind man who's healed, but then he sees men and they look like trees walking. There's lots of that all through Mark. But there are some definite moments where, like in the book of Revelation, like in the book of Daniel, that I think Mark really understood and knew, the heavens are torn open and we see Jesus for who he really is. One of them is at his baptism. Mark actually says, after Jesus came up out of the water... Right, which is a figure of the resurrection, the heavens were torn open and the spirit descended on him out of dove, And there was a voice that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is a preview of the ascension of the son of man, the presentation of the son of man to the ancient of days. During the transfiguration, this happens again. They're there and there's a loud voice from the cloud and his garments turn white, which is how the ancient of days is described. His garments were white and his hair was like wool. And Jesus, whoa, this is, this is a moment. This is a revelation. Of, this is the veil being torn in two. 
between us and heaven. We're seeing who Jesus really is. And then when he's on the cross, right? And out of the cloud, there's this loud voice. Well, when he's on the cross, Jesus is hanging there. And at the moment of his death, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. And what happens? The curtain is torn in two. And then what happens? The centurion says, this is the son of God. He sees him for who he really is. These are moments in Mark that are a lot like the moments in Daniel or the moments in Revelation or any of the other prophetic moments where the veil is torn back and we see reality. We see heavenly, eternal truth. But the earthly mind is, it, it can't really process that. That's why the book of Revelation is really weird to us. Or some of the visions in Daniel are just like, what is happening? Jesus told his disciples to wait until he rose from the dead. Which is, in essence, saying, I need to complete the full mission. You guys are going to need to see beginning, middle, end, conclusion. Because you, you understand Son of Man, and you understand Isaiah 53, suffering servant. But what you don't understand is those are the same people. And prior to being presented to the Ancient of Days, and the reason that I can be presented to the Ancient of Days is what? Because I was a suffering servant. Looking back then, after we read the whole gospel, and I think this is where Mark wants us to get Looking back, we can go to Jesus' proclamation of the gospel and see that his declaration that the time is fulfilled, yes, he was saying it's time for the Son of Man to be presented to the Ancient of Days. It's time for the kingdom to be turned over to the Son of Man. But we can also see that within that proclamation was Jesus understanding that the hour was approaching that he prayed would just as soon pass. <laughs> Father, if it's possible, let me not go through this hour. But because the time had come, the hour needed to come. And we can also see looking back that the kingdom of God is at hand meant, by the way that Mark tells the story, meant prior to being served by all peoples, prior to ascending to the throne, he would ascend and, and get up on the cross. So listen to, listen to the way that Mark tells this story. Chapter 14, verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. But this is, the, this is the fullness of time. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? <laughs> 41. He came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The time is fulfilled. Jesus' hour has come. And because he submitted to the suffering and death of the hour, the fullness of time could come.
and the new age could begin in which all of those things that were promised in the prophets could actually begin to come to pass. Chapter 15, verse 26. The kingdom of God is at hand. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. You have to hear the irony in there. It's because he did not save himself that he saved others. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come now, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You see this? Hey, if he'll get off the cross, then we'll believe him. That's the opposite of the gospel. <laughs> Repent and believe what your preconceived notion of, of what the Son of Man was? No. They wanted to believe their gospel not the gospel. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So when Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he saw the joy that was set before him, which was ascending to his father in the glory of the heavenly angels, being presented to the ancient of days, fulfilling and ushering in that new age, the new heavens and the new earth, kingdom of God breaking into the earth and redeeming it back. He saw that, but that was the joy that was set before him, which caused him to what? Endure the cross. So when Jesus came to proclaim the gospel, he came to say, it's time. Now watch, watch me work. Watch the son of man go as it is written of him. And then when you see me rise, and then when you see me ascend on the clouds to my Father, then you'll know. Then you can tell people who I am, because before then, you don't understand. You don't get it. It's a partial gospel. It's your own gospel. It's a misreading of the word. So the gospel, as Jesus proclaims it, is both an announcement of the fulfillment of Israel's deepest hope, that God would reestablish the throne of Israel and rule the world and bring everything back to justice. But it's also, as Mark tells it, it's also a revelation of the most fundamental principles upon which the kingdom and the throne are established. It's a vision of the glorious and powerful Son of Man before he's presented in glory to the Ancient of Days which is as the suffering servant, the dying uh, on behalf of many, bearing the iniquity of us all. This is Philippians 2. Even death on a cross. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. It was because he came and suffered. It was because he did not exercise his authority as the son of man 
and blow everyone to bits. <laughs> it was because he came not to be served, but to serve that now all nations will serve him. Amen. So we'll talk next week about repenting and believing in the gospel. But first, I think it's necessary to fully understand everything that, that is both explicit but also implicit in Jesus' proclamation that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is true. And the, the original hearers would hear, oh yeah, that's a good thing. But they, they, no eye could see, no ear could hear <laughs> what was about to take place in the life of Jesus. And so when that grips us, when we do see what he went through, when we see the fullness of the gospel, when we see everything that transpired, and then finally his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. That's what we repent and believe in. And I don't think we can actually repent and believe until we really see what's going on in the fulfillment of the times and the coming of the kingdom of God through the suffering king, through the suffering servant. Amen? So next week we'll talk about how the second part of the gospel is, is, is our response to that. And if the first part's clear in our minds, the second part works a lot better. <laughs> right? Because, well, we'll talk about it next week. <laughs> Silence. Amen?